You are listening to episode 1540 of the Permaculture Podcast, a listener-supported program. If you enjoy hearing the various guests who join me for discussions about their passions, visit the Contribute tab at thepermaculturepodcast.com to see how you can help the show keep going and growing. This episode is a conversation with Jason Gadeski, creator of The Fifth World Role-Playing Game, recorded in person several weeks ago at the Save Against Fear convention. As I start our conversation with an introduction to all of this and more, let's go ahead and get started. I'll join you afterwards with Jason's responses to some listener questions and my reflection on the conversation that follows. On with the discussion. Hello, everyone. I'm here with Jason Gadeski. We're recording this interview live at the Save Against Fear convention that some friends of mine hold. It is an annual role-playing game convention and nonprofit fundraiser for their 501c3, the Bodana Group, which helps to do outreach for families and children that have been affected by childhood trauma. And they use board games and role-playing games in order to bring families together and to help children heal. I'm speaking with Jason because he's been a long-time listener to the show, and we've had a number of conversations off the air about rewilding and foraging and other pieces of those pursuits. But he is also the author of The Fifth World, an open-source role-playing game that looks to examine what our world would be like 400 years in the future when humanity can thrive beyond civilization. And so I'd like, Jason, if you might give us a little bit of an introduction to yourself and how you came to this perspective of the world and how long you've been practicing and studying what it would be like for humanity to live differently. Sure. It goes back to high school when I had an English teacher who assigned Daniel Quinn's Ishmael to me, which, of course, I saw it on his desk and made fun of it. Uh, is this like the sequel to Moby Dick or something? But after I read it, it met me where I was. I, I was a pretty conservative kid at the time, and uh, the the analysis of the Genesis story as the origins of agriculture that Daniel Quinn talks about just kind of met me where I was. At that point, I realized that I had a big choice in front of me. Either this was true or it wasn't. And if it was true, then I was going to have to change everything about my life and spend the rest of my life working with this. And if it wasn't, then I could leave it aside and, and go on my merry way with all the things that I wanted to do. That kind of became my, my mission in college. I uh, ended up with a, bat a bachelor degree in anthropology because of it, trying to investigate because Daniel Quinn wrote a great book, but he didn't leave many footnotes. So uh, I told people uh, with some of my writing online that I was writing the footnotes to Ishmael. But that led me down a path of really investigating a lot of the things about um, so-called primitive societies, indigenous societies, how they live. And if I found that, if anything, Daniel Quinn undersold the case. Now, this has put me into the rewilding community, and it's, uh, I'm afraid that I haven't done much to, haven't made much progress squaring that circle of how to uh, make a living in this world in a way that I can respect. So I don't have anything practical to offer. What I do have is a lot of study and a model. And of course, all models are wrong, but I hope this one is useful. What model are you using then as kind of a framework to move forward with this work, even if you're, as you say, you might feel that you're not doing that much practically in the process in, you know, all the background and the study that I've gone through with permaculture, we have this very high order place that we start in, in order to get to the groundwork to make the change happen. Is that kind of a place that you're coming from to work from that top down or is it just that you happen to inhabit that top space and that's where you kind of think and work? Well, I'm told 
by some people who are doing a lot more practical on the ground, real things than I am that uh, they read my, my work and it helped them. So I'll take that as a win. So as far as what the model is, uh, I think that the biggest shock was learning about the Neolithic mortality crisis, uh, which is right when people started using agriculture, there was a massive die off. The average age of death dropped to like 30 or 25. And this also goes into the perception of uh, how indigenous societies don't live very long because their agrarian societies don't live very long. It, and even when you uh, account for uh, infant mortality, which you still have to with hunter-gatherer societies, because that is also a thing that throws off your normal calculation. But agrarian societies still don't have very high life expectancies. It's only really in the past century or so that Europe has come out of the Neolithic mortality crisis, because there was a slow creeping up of the average age of, of mortality uh, th through the 10,000 years of agriculture but really not a lot of change until the modern era. And this just kind of shocked me because almost all of the traditional theories of how agriculture got started take as a base assumption that once it is available, people will flock to it because it's such an easier way of life. But no matter how you cut it, it is not an easier way of life. People die much, young, much younger in agrarian societies. It's it's, there's there's a lot of work about how much do hunter-gatherers have to work, how many hours. Uh, the first estimates uh, from the Kalahari were like two hours a day. But then another person went in and said, well, if you count the things that of like preparing food and cooking and, and keeping your tools up, it's actually more like eight hours a day. So it's not that much different. Except if we really want to expand it to that, we should also be including on our side all the time we spend going to the grocery store and all the time we spend cleaning the house, in which case they still win. I find this over and over again when we talk about health, when we talk about longevity, when we talk about any of these measurable dimensions of human well-being. It's either that hunter-gatherers are way better <laughs> or that it's, it's a close one where the hunter-gatherers living in the most inhospitable environments that you could possibly find on the planet are comparable to the most wealthy and powerful elites that civilization can produce. You answered one of the questions that I was going to have for you about the mortality crisis because of the switch in technology from hunter-gatherer to an agrarian society. If that was the place where that transition occurred and that, that adjustment to agriculture was that where this incidence, this die-off occurred. From what you just laid out for me, it's a systemic kind of a problem until we reach the modern industrial era with germ theory, with modern medicine, and the ability to extract so much energy through fossil fuels that we're able to raise the amount of food that we are able to to support the size of the population that we have, and then also to take care of these lifestyle diseases in order to keep people alive longer and healthier as compared to the pre-agrarian, the hunter-gatherers? That may be it, but I think that there might be another element in there. Because if you look back in history to, say, like the Middle Ages, nobles and kings lived as long as Americans do today, just about. They seem to have many of the same diseases that Americans do today. So is it that we became better at keeping people alive with fossil fuels and things like that? Or is it that we have redistributed who are the elites and who are the underclass in a way that allows us to change the numbers? Before you look at medieval England, you have a bunch of peasants weighing down the numbers for the king. But today we can look at the United States who are the lords and aristocrats and, and kings of the world and uh, just have their numbers and compare it to Namibia. 
we've exported the exploitation of those people who are required to keep the elites in that place. Exactly. Then within the model that you have of pre-agrarian societies and hunter-gatherers, is there a way that we can apply that to the world that exists at the moment with a population of 7 billion people and cars and trucks and, you know, turning on the light switch and everything else? In permaculture, there seem to be more or less three threads from the conversations that I tend to have. We either have a hard crash, a soft crash, or we find a way to continue business as usual. Within your model, is there a way that you see this transition in inhabiting one of those three spaces? So I always hear people tell me that uh, hunting and gathering can't be a solution because there's no way that 7 billion people could do it, and that's true. But on the other hand, the current system isn't working out for 7 billion people either, so this isn't working either for the very same reason. So if, this, if the current system isn't working, then there's going to be a change. There's simply no way around it, right? That It logically follows. So my academic journey uh, through this has been kind of a roller coaster ride with many dips of depression and then going much higher in, in uh, my hope than I ever thought that we could go. This is the first dip because after realizing the situation that we're in, it seemed kind of hopeless to escape it. What compels civilizations to always grow? I think that there's a prisoner's dilemma there because as soon as you have an option to grow, either you take it or your neighbor takes it and then crushes you. And so you have this race set out that can only end with the exploitation of everything on earth. But then you hit limits to growth, and then what happens? But I think that there are ways to soften that transition so that instead of a collapse, that you have a, a smoother transition. I don't have enough hope personally to really believe that at this point we can avoid 10,000 years of consequences that we've been running from completely. But everything we do gets to move it towards one end or the other. There is a spectrum somewhere between Mad Max and a completely peaceful transition to a permaculture future. And I don't really believe that either one is realistic. I think it's going to be somewhere in the middle. And I think that what we get to do is decide where in the middle it lands. That idea of where we land and how it happens has been one of the turning points in transition nodes for me in the conversation of permaculture because of the sooner, faster, harder now, just in time kind of mentality that, I mean, I came from an IT background. It has to be done yesterday. And, you know, you're only as good as your last mistake that you corrected, not the work that you do every day. These things that are invisible, the fires that you put out, the things that are taken care of without anybody ever knowing. And it was in looking long term, in moving out of that moment to moment, but to more to of a, a seasonal and a cyclical and a lifetime kind of process that if we're going to try to reverse 10,000 years of decisions in a decade or even a century, that it has to be hard. There's no other way but to more or less wreck the ship onto the shores and then see what we can carry to land, as opposed to can we take a long-term perspective and this is one of the elements that I like about the work that you're doing with the fifth world that you're imagining at 400 years in the future that we have so many generations removed from the era that we're in that the time before are just stories and I think about history as much as I've studied textbooks and archaeology and actually handling hundreds of year old artifacts they're still just an artifact I don't know the hands of the artist that made them or their personal story so I only know these little bits and glimpses and that to have a soft transition, 
because I don't think a, a fully peaceful and kind of, you know, we're all going to be okay is the way that it happens as much as I would like it to be that in order to have that softer landing, that it is a long-term perspective, that I am not going to be the agent of change who makes it happen now, but that by making changes today, that those have ripples into the future. And I look at my children and the decisions that I'm going through with them, that it'll be my, well, that idea of that seven generations from me, when I am just a story and a memory, that that will be the place in which we can have this kind of a smoother, softer. But it's a big picture, and it's honestly really scary to think about the choices that we're making today and both the negative and positive consequences they'll have on us. Yeah, I, so I found that uh, I could write pages and pages about life expectancy among hunter-gatherers, and at the end of it, every, uh, the person I'm talking to would nod their head and say, yeah, sure, but I, you know, it's still really grim to think about dying so young as a hunter-gatherer. Like, we just went over this. They don't die young. <laughs> and it would be the same thing. Uh, uh, sophistication in philosophy or arts or theology, and we would go over how they're just as advanced as we are in all those regards. Or, uh, you know, health and happiness and how it's just the same. But still, no matter how much you talk about the academics, when you come right down to it, they think that it's very grim what you're presenting as, as a future possibility because... They just have this image of nasty, brutish, and short, and it's and it's not going to be dislodged by academics. That's the role of art, and that's why I started making this game, because it was the only way to get people to understand why I'm actually hopeful about the future. And 400 years from, the, from now is a big part of it, because I don't know what the near future will be, and I imagine it will, it will be at times a rocky transition. But to look past that, to a world that you can actually have hope in. And I see this a lot in science fiction. I, th I think that there's an, a, a certain abandonment. We've lost faith in that bright, shiny future that was presented to us in imperial science fiction from the 60s. We don't believe anymore that we're going to go to the stars or that replicators will come and fix all of our problems. We're seeing that technology is the cause of our problems as often as it is the solution. What is the science fiction that we tell our, each other now? We talk about dystopian futures and we have cyberpunk. Like, we've lot, we, we're desperate for some new vision of what the future could be and i'm hoping that this that the fifth world could be that sort of vision because when you can see that as a future possibility that can be something that can motivate what you do now like if if i believe in star trek i will be saying you know what screw the screw the earth we'll burn it to ashes to get to mars and that will be where things will be good and we will leave a trail of dead planets in our wake I don't even know if that's possible, but if it, if it is, it's horrifying. Uh, we're the alien invaders from some B science fiction movie. If we go with the loss of hope and more modern science fiction, then there's no reason to even try. But I'm amazed at how quickly the world forgives us. Like where we're sitting in 2003, there was the big blackout. And the air quality here was 100% better in three days. You know, there's so many problems that go away and heal almost as soon as you stop continuing to cause them. <laughs> uh, so there's, there's that being reconciled with a more than human world that wants you back and is waiting for you to come home. And if I can get people to think like that, like I think that one of the biggest challenges for the transition that we face is just having the imagination to imagine a different way. Like the Donner Party, starved to death, in a pine grove after visiting 
uh, some Paiute Indians who told them, hey, pine nuts are great if you're really desperate and don't have any food. But it never occurred to them to, to act like that. Greenland, the Greenland colony apparently did the same thing because they refused to fish. They couldn't imagine fishing, even though Norwegians fish. <laughs> so we are constrained far more by our imagination and what we consider possible than by the actual range of what's possible. So if I can help spark some imagination and help people imagine something new, maybe it's all worth it. It's been one of the ongoing elements of my journey, and I know it's something that you've probably heard me talk about or we, we have gotten into a little bit this weekend, is about how after many, many years, the approach that I went through was one of reduction, reduction, reduction. I wanted facts. I wanted figures. I wanted to know all these little ingrained granular parts. And then it was only in beginning to study environmental education where it was about, no, we need to be, we need to be myth makers. We need to be storytellers. We have to ensure that music is still there in art because that is the way that we transmit knowledge and ideas through time. It's not by facts and figures because the way that that is written and understood is continually changing, but the stories give us a place to start from. And they're something that are readily transmittable through voice or pictures and give us a cultural way to communicate through time. And we can take those elements of our culture and our society and then combine them with what we already know from all these little pieces that we've divided ourselves into and bring them back together. But if you're not used to sitting down and telling stories or coming from that kind of a background, it can be very strange. I don't know really anybody who doesn't play some kind of a game, whether it's a card game or a dice game or something like that. And with what you're doing with the fifth world, and I'll admit I've been a gamer for 25 years, so I've had this as a kind of a background, but that these kinds of games provide a bit of a structure in which to do community storytelling. And as much as I've gone to visioning sessions through Transition Town or with permaculture groups, that playing some games like this might be a better way for us to do it because we're all telling the story together. I was also a gamer before I read Ishmael, back when I was a kind of conservative, weird kid in high school. And that it was the confluence of those streams. And they took a while for them to cross. I thought they didn't have anything to do with each other. So another example of my uh, roller coaster ride, uh, reading David Abrams' Spell of the Sensuous, and he talks about all the different ways that oral tradition figures into indigenous life, how it provides not just like an encyclopedia of local uh, knowledge and ethnobotany and things like that, but how the stories cling to places in your territory and act as guides of behavior and how you relate to each other as a community and ultimately knit together family and land as a single thing. I even heard uh, about one indigenous group from a an anthropologist who made this the title of his book. Uh, an, in, an indigenous group met with some uh, settlers who were one who said that this was their land, and they asked them, "If this is your land, where are your stories?" Like it's the stories that make you really belong to a place. And we've lost so much by losing our oral tradition. And I was really depressed about this is the sort of thing that takes centuries or millennia to regenerate. How And we've lost it all. We are starting from such an impoverished place. And then realizing what I do every weekend and how we refer to the stories that we've played through just like myths and legends and we refer to them for standards of behavior and when i make a, a modern day game and uh, we play in a place that we actually know and we walk past it 
somebody will say, hey, that right over there, that's where that thing happened. Uh, it's not oral tradition. It's not there yet. But it is regenerating it so f- much faster than anything you could ever ask for. So yes, we're in the most impoverished place you could imagine. And yet we have the most powerful engine to regenerate it that I think you could ever have. I can tell you the name of the first character that I ever created playing Dungeons and Dragons when I was 10 years old. Just like I can recite the original Greek gods. I mean, it's very similar. (laughs) And walking around here this weekend, because we are at a gaming event, there are people here talking about the names on their participant badges come from a character that they used at one point. One of the independent game producers here, the name of their game comes from their screen name when they were first starting out with a cyberpunk game and they signed on online. And... All these different pieces come together for me. I think about the interview that I did with Dr. David Blumenkrantz and Jen Mendez. And David was saying that if we get our story wrong, we get our future wrong. But if we get our story right, we get our future right. But as you say, all these stories that we've lost. I think the key to any healthy oral tradition is how it adapts over time. So that you don't have to worry so much about getting your story wrong. If the story's wrong, it'll change and it'll adapt and it'll become a new story. Uh, it's not a matter. I, I, I agree with what he's saying about, you know, you, you get the story wrong, you get your future wrong. But I also think that a healthy oral tradition would be more of an interplay than just that. The distinction with what you're saying is the oral portion of that, because if it's not written down, then the storyteller, it's part of their voice comes into it and their time, their place but a lot of it is in the dialogue between people because as the two of us sit here, our exchange, there is new information occurring and synthesizing between the two of us as we build off of each other. But as each of us sit here, it is the life of our culture that provides us the space to understand and interpret what we know, that we share certain things in common because we're both white males in America we're of similar age, we have certain hobbies that we've shared, but then it's in the differences of, I started in computer science, you started in anthropology, we have these different studies. and Well, actually, computer science and anthropology, because I knew I was going to have to make a living somehow. <laughs> you and I have way too much in common. Because <laughs> oddly enough, I think I've said I was originally an anthropology, sociology, dual major, but I dropped yeah. that because I couldn't make a living. Yeah, yeah, it, w- it was spooky when I heard that. <laughs> With that, the way that we can take those ideas, even as we joke about the things that we have in common, those differences add to what we learn from one another. And I think about the interview with Ethan Hughes when he was detailing the like five tenets of his community, that they're not written down anywhere so they don't become dogma, and the way that that can change, and the role of the storyteller and coming from a family where we were always telling stories, and how... The traditions can change because we're sitting here now recording digitally and we'll be sharing what we're talking about with the world. It was one of the things that was important for me with my family before my grandmother passed. I recorded an interview with her to collect her story because there were a lot of things that I didn't know about that side of my family that I realized that her children never told those elements that she told me and it completely changed this perspective. And how then do you see taking this idea of regenerating an oral tradition with where we are in this moment? How can we build on that through things like games and what we have? I, I do have a very ambivalent relationship with writing. One, I write a lot and I write with big $10 words. At the same time, I, I've, I've become skeptical of writing. 
people like Walter Ong and David Abram. I like the way that David Abram put it as writing is a powerful magic that we are intoxicated by. And in a way, it makes it harder for us to understand the other than human world because we get drawn so deeply into the human world of symbols shared with other humans. And as we get drawn more into that, without that grounding in a more than human world that is not written, it drifts away into its own little bubble of self-reflective human thoughts, uninformed by anything else. But at the same time, I'm using a wiki for the fifth world uh, to make it open source so that, you know, when you play a game and you, you come through this story of, of what life is like 400 years from now, you add it to the wiki. And by so doing, we're expanding this vision of the world. People are filling in what life is like where they live 400 years from now. So I think that at the moment, it's where we are. And, you, you know, you have to engage those things, even if you want to move somewhere else. And even with regards to moving somewhere else, I, I remain ambivalent. I'm not sure, would we want to discard literacy? Would we even be able to? I don't know. As far as using games, I think that the main thing that games help with is, so you could probably try to create a normal tradition out of existing myths. And that would be very tempting because, oh, look, they're already myths. They're already legends. But how much do they really resonate with us? If we were to pull the things that really resonate with us, we'd probably be pulling more from comic books and Disney movies than from actual myths, because those are the things that really have power for us. In many ways, our pop culture has become modern mythology. Absolutely. Now that you might say that that's a good start and try to build from there. But I think that that would actually take longer because these are created by single authors. And so eventually, over repetition, you'll, cr you'll be able to build an oral tradition on top of them, but you're starting from a core of a single author. Whereas with a role-playing game, it is already collaborative. It is already a story told by the people at that table that could never be told in any other way. I could never tell the story of the Game of the Fifth World that I just finished. It could only be told by the four of us that were there at that table at that moment. And... I'm not saying that every session is going to give you a story worthy of myth. It's doing it on a regular basis that starts to create the material that an oral tradition might someday spring from, and maybe a couple generations faster than it would if we were all trying to build it off of modern pop culture. Which is one thing that I like about this event that we're at this weekend is because it is family-oriented. There are children here who are participating in the collaborative storytelling, some of them at the table with their parents, others at tables by themselves, with people who they've never met, never know, but they are actively a part of telling that story. And it's an engagement that, for several generations in my family and people who I've known, in order to participate, you need to be invited in because of an attitude of... If you're not going to do it right, don't do it at all, or you're going to do it my way. There was not a lot of chance for play or experimentation to do something. It was a, here is a structure, here is an order, this is the only way to do it. Whereas with the games that we play and with the stories that we tell in this environment, there's no should or would, there's no right or wrong. It's what do you want to explore in that moment? What context are you coming from? What place do you inhabit as a human being to be a part of this story? I don't know if this is your story, but I'm sure that you have uh, met other people like this who come with that attitude of, if you're not going to do it right, don't do it at all. And they shut down and that something like role playing can really help them to just do. And it doesn't matter if it's the best or not. This is how you get better is by doing. And that 
that's a uh, important thing for you know going back to permaculture you know to go out and do is probably better than waiting until you have the perfect swale planned to do something and that's how you'll get better but a lot of this uh, con that we're at here is about using role playing for healing and that's something that I've done personally, even before I connected it to rewilding. Uh, I used it to try to practice being a better person. I used it to pull out my inner demons and, and interrogate them by making them a character. And everybody at this con is, is here and fascinated by that idea of how do you use this game to help heal yourself and to help heal your friends around you through this engaging activity. And I think that also goes back to forming oral tradition because when a story saves you, you remember that. that. That is the core of a myth. Right from its very genesis, this is a story that saved someone's life. A large part of coming to events like this and having participated with the Bodana Group in helping to develop the convention and being able to have the space to explore elements like we are today for healing and therapy, every person I know who has played a role-playing game has had a piece of it be a part of their life in a deep, meaningful way. Even people I know who never thought that they would play a game or explore some of the things that they did, to have those people who are not necessarily the most socially adept to fill that role of a hero and for a couple of hours be the hero in that story and to see how they can be a hero in their own lives. And again, this pulls back to Carl Jung and, and Joseph Campbell here of A Thousand Faces and the narrative that we tell ourselves. And there's a lot of discussion that I've had about that idea of personal mythology with the members of the Bodana group about how as we engage in these kinds of stories, we're able to change our own stories. You say some of the things that you were able to explore and interrogate about yourself. And for me, with the broad range of stories that have been told from fantasy to science fiction to dark horror to sometimes you sit down with your friends and you go, let's just play an all villain game and see what it's like to inhabit the world that way. And there's a bit of catharsis to it, especially when you realize how counter it is and how hard it is to do terrible things in a safe space. I uh, read a case study from a therapist who was talking about a uh, young teen who was suicidal and couldn't figure out what was going on with him. But he liked to play Dungeons and Dragons, and so he played an evil character. And through that, he was able to start to communicate what he was feeling, which was that his younger brother was disabled and his parents had to spend a lot of time with him. And so he felt first neglected by his parents because he got so little of their attention and eventually resentful of his sibling, which he, he couldn't even countenance that he was feeling that way because it would be such an evil thing to be resentful of your brother for being disabled. But it was still a real feeling and he had no way of communicating it until he embraced what do I think is evil and was through that able to encounter like what Jung would call the shadow, the thing that you don't like about yourself and understand it and reconcile with it. And one thing that Dave Jack and I have talked about often that came up in the recent round table that I recorded with him a few months ago was about that idea that emotions are telling us something. I really liked that part. <laughs> and I did as well because of this reductionist idea of the rational mind, but so much of what we do is irrational. In order to really connect deeply to have intimacy, we have to have a place and a space to be all those things that we are and not to try to shove them down, not to try to ignore them, but to be able to incorporate them into our story as part of our personal myth and then the culture and the people around us and 
having a place to do that is really powerful and games and storytelling really help that and i found that there are many many gamers here this weekend uh, one individual was talking about how he helps support these kinds of programs because he's a former member of the military with ptsd and so he goes to these kinds of events to raise awareness and then to help other members of the military with what they're encountering and everywhere there is a place within these stories that we tell even if it is just to tell a story to a friend about how we're feeling that gives us a place to explore that can then be something that we can build on and grow from but games and these environments are a really good place if anybody wants to begin exploring i can understand the people who kind of scoff when you say that all of these big important towering things come across in games like that's just silly you are so wrapped up in yourself that you could actually believe this that that's silly but my my response to that would is usually when because i get that a reaction plenty of times is that wow where else would you expect it to come from i mean if you want a system to change like the world that we live in today it's not going to come from the expected angles because by definition any functioning system has defenses against the expected angles so anything that's going to change things is going to be unexpected I mean, sometimes I just get so frustrated with the earnestness of activists sometimes because the way that you're approaching is exactly the way that they expect you to approach. If it seems silly, if it seems ineffective, sometimes I think that that's exactly the signal that it is effective. If it feels like you're not doing anything, that is probably the most effective course to take. The things that feel good are usually the things that we've been told are effective, which are the things that the whole system is prepared for, which means they're probably the ones that make us feel good and don't actually accomplish much. One of my two favorite things about doing this kind of work are my friends who are the activists who will engage in like the theater of the absurd yes. to really like do something crazy and draw attention to something. And I have a friend who went to the Art Institute of Chicago and she was doing performance theater and she was talking about one time she was standing in the middle of a roadway on one foot holding a duck and then she was the one who was quacking. And just the way that that draws attention to her in that moment and how that can then raise a different awareness than the signs that people are used to ignoring. Like uh, the Yes Men. I really admire a lot of the things they do. But it looks like games, doesn't it? Because it approaches from an angle that nobody's expecting and so there's no guard up. And the other side is subversion. I'm a big fan of subversion. <laughs> There are often times when people write and ask questions about the show and where things go and I always encourage to go back to the beginning and to listen and to watch how the arc of the podcast has changed and you'll find a message and you'll find a story. But I find that some of the most effective things are those left unsaid. And again, games and storytelling, what are the details that no one is listening to? What is it within what's occurring? Someone is saying something at the table someone is adding something to the conversation. Everybody hears the same words coming out of their mouth, but how do they interpret it and what, they, what do they do with it? And that absurdity, that subversion, that storytelling provides a different way to engage that can touch on not only the academic and the you know, cerebral brain, but really connect with the emotional as well and make a connection that many of these actions that we engage in as activists or protesters or others, we fail at because we're not communicating in a way that reaches people and too often having a very focused point 
and I'm borrowing from Judith Hendry, who wrote a book on environmental communication, and in there about how our words matter and the difference between having precise language or general language and how do we get people to engage based on drawing out of them what it is they care about. And again, playing games at a table can teach you so much about somebody and where they come from and where they're going. And I apologize, we only have a few minutes before the next workshop comes in. I don't want that to be the final thought. What would you like to add to this conversation, Jason, for the listeners as we draw this to a close? Well, one of the things that I wanted to do with The Fifth World is uh, get to the idea that every place tells a story, that you can kind of start to hear it if you pay attention to what happens there. I find usually when I pay attention to like the geology, the history, really get into what a place has experienced, I start to notice a, a common theme. So I was trying to make a, a pre-gen family to bring to this conference for this area. And one of the things I noticed was the travel and the crossroads. You know, a lot of the interstates, like the, there's a big interstate crossing here and uh, the, like the Pennsylvania Turnpike really got started with Carlisle just over there. And a lot of these interstates, before they were interstates, were trading paths before Columbus. And a lot of those trading paths were following the migration routes of mammoths during the Ice Age. So these paths are patterns that have existed before humans were here, even. That, to me, says that there's there's a story that the place itself is telling of confluence and, and meeting. And so I tried to build that into the family so that we could then project it forward. What does the place continue to say? If we stop and listen to the story, what is it continuing to say 400 years from now? And so I tried to make the game's mechanics focus around actually listening to one place after another that you actually know, that you actually go to and see every day. What is the story that it's telling? And what is it still saying 400 years from now? And one by one, as you play that, I'm hoping that you start to get an understanding of the place where you live that is deeper, that ties you to a place. You know, real, I think it was Kirkland Sale used, uh, liked the Spanish word carencia, which means uh, the sense of well-being that comes from being home. And most people today move around a lot. And I, I see the value in that the, like, a, like a salmon. You go out somewhere, are enriched by something, and then you come home, which is also the hero's journey, right? But you need to come home and to, re, to, to enrich that place that you're from, to have that bio... I'm, I'm a very uh, strident bioregionalist, <laughs> and, and I'm trying to bring that out and that and what is it it's the stories that bind us to those places so i think that one of the best things that we can do is tie ourselves to those stories tell those stories over and over again and in telling those stories listen to what the place where we live what story does it have to tell i hope after listening to this everyone will take the time to explore where they live better root themselves and expand on their sense of place to find that story and be able to project not only what they imagine could be in the future, but also to understand how they got there and what the past has to tell them. Thank you, Jason. Thank you. And that was Jason Gadeski, creator of The Fifth World role-playing game. Find out more about that game and his work at thefifthworld.com. If you would like to know more about Save Against Fear, the gaming convention where this was recorded, the website is saveagainstfear.com. The Bodona Group, which organized the event and uses the funds raised each year to assist the children and families impacted by childhood abuse and trauma, is at thebodonagroup.org. 
For your convenience, you'll find links to all of these resources in the show notes at thepermaculturepodcast.com. As you may have noticed in our closing, Jason and I ran out of time in our conversation and did not get to address all the listener questions. I emailed those to him, and he kindly responded. Question 1. Composting toilets? Jason. Do you mean to ask if I have one? No. I think that reusing what's already built usually beats building something new. That, combined with my bioregional commitments, led me to go in with my brother to buy the house that we grew up in. It's a fairly traditional suburban setting, and I haven't had much headway with repurposing much of it yet. Or do you mean to ask what I think of composting toilets? My opinion on them is the same as herb spirals, hugel culture, and just about all of the other cool permaculture techniques. They're great, in the right context. There are several kinds of design that figure prominently in my life, especially web design, game design, and permaculture design. Across them all, I've become convinced that design itself comes down to really thinking through what you want to accomplish here, in this specific context, and picking the principles and techniques that focus on those goals. In each of these fields, I see people who look for the shortcut of just picking from the pre-approved list of best practices. But no matter how many people have employed a thing successfully elsewhere, no one has ever applied it in your specific circumstances before. So, to bring all that back down to earth for a moment, I love composting toilets, and they'll probably fit in well with most permaculture designs, but the world has never seen a truly one-size-fits-all solution, and probably never will, not even composting toilets. Question 2. Wow, I love RPGing. It looks like it's a magic-free world. Is there any technology above Stone Age? What mechanic is used? D20? 3D6? Fate? Will it be available on DriveThruRPG? Will it ever be in print? Is it in beta and can my group help test? Jason. The fifth world takes place in our world, 400 years from now, so it has all of the magic that our world has. I take that to mean a great deal of magic, though none of the Vancean fireballs that a wizard from Dungeons and Dragons would recognize. In Becoming Animal, David Abram writes of his apprenticeship to a Nepalese magician who taught him how to shapeshift a long regimen of training his awareness that involved nothing supernatural and yet ended in astonishing magic. I wonder about the ways that magicians could use altered states of consciousness to heighten thin slicing, as Malcolm Gladwell called it, to go through mystical experiences that synthesize vast amounts of data, allowing them to make better decisions, which they would experience as mystical journeys and encounters, and really what makes my neurological explanation any more real than their first-hand experience. Hunter-gatherers learn the calls of different animals well enough to mimic them and to understand the responses they get in return, so that we can really only deny the conclusion that they speak with animals out of spite. It seems less false to me to call things magic than to call them anything else. I think that an interruption to our industrial infrastructure would not leave much room for restarting it. The first time around, we could find sources of metal near the surface. We used those up as we made tools to dig deeper for more. Similarly, we used fuel that we could find easily to build machines that could dig deeper to get more. We've used up the sources of metal and fuel that we can obtain easily from the surface. We dig deeper for them because we can no longer find them more easily. So if we interrupt that process, we won't find the metals or fuels we need to get to the depths where we now find metals and fuels. It will take geological ages to push them back to the surface. That restriction definitely limits the kinds of technology available in the fifth world. I wouldn't call it Stone Age exactly, for example, you can't find much flint easily now either, but you can find plenty of broken glass, and you can nap that into knives, spearheads, and arrowheads quite effectively. So rather than stone, 
they use colored glass from discarded bottles. Mostly, though, I prefer to focus on their priorities. As a society, we generally believe that technology improves our lives and will ultimately save us from our problems, so we have become excellent at producing technology and have neglected the techniques for building social bonds and deep relationships. In the fifth world, people generally believe that social bonds and deep relationships will improve their lives and ultimately save them from their problems, so they spend as much time and energy focused on that as we spend focused on technology. The game has its own rules. I firmly believe that good game design means focusing on a game's specific purpose. Rolling dice, for instance, works really well in a game that keeps revolving around the question, can I do it? When you have the dice in your hand, you wonder what will come up, if you can roll high enough to overcome the obstacle. For an animist game like The Fifth World, though, this doesn't help, because whether or not you can overcome someone, and generally someone rather than something, doesn't usually matter nearly as much as whether or not you can connect with that person. That led me to using a deck of cards. Each time you draw a card, you don't ask, can I do it, but what will I discover? This, I think, makes cards a great way to focus on exploration. In this case, I tried to use that focus on exploring both physical space and social space. The Fifth World doesn't have a Game Master, GM, like many other RPGs do. Instead, the players share the roles that a GM would normally fill. Each player has a number of awareness points, which they use to ask questions. They choose one of the other players to answer the question, and as we answer these questions, we begin to discover the fifth world together. This has an interesting side effect. NPCs can seem to have personalities and minds all their own. We all build off of what we've already established together, but we might have different ideas of what follows naturally from any given point. So the same NPC can potentially surprise everyone at the table at one point or another. The Fifth World presents an open-source game with an open-source setting. That means that the most canonical version will always exist online at thefifthworld.com RPG. That said, I recognize how much it can help to have a book in your hand. That also gets into my business plan and how I hope to sustain this so I can afford to put more time into it. I want to present a free PDF packet with everything in it. I'm also hoping to produce a Scout book, www.scoutbooks.com, aiming at a price point of $10 or less, and possibly expansions published in the same manner. Since it uses cards, I'm working on putting a custom card set on drive-through cards. I'd like to create a better set with custom artwork for each card, but I don't have enough art for that yet. I'd also like to make a more elaborate art book in the style of Dinotopia by James Gurney, or Gnomes by Will Huygen and Rin Portvlet. Both of those, however, will require a great deal more art. I have a Patreon set up if you'd like to help me with that at patreon.com forward slash J-E-F Gadeski. The game still sits in a public beta phase, so I'd love it if you could play test it and send me your thoughts. You can find the full rules and the link to the feedback form at thefifthworld.com forward slash wiki forward slash RPG. And that ends the listener questions. If you have more questions for Jason about the game or anything we discussed today, feel free to let me know because I look forward to recording another interview with him in the future, as well as a live play of The Fifth World so you can hear what the game and the experience of collaborative storytelling is like. If you have any questions for me, or there's a way I can assist you on your path, let me know. Email show at permaculturepodcast.com or call 717-827-6266. After having this conversation with Jason, as well as many others off the record throughout the weekend, I left with a lot to process about what it means to have culture, to live in community, to tell stories, to create myths that last generations. I don't have answers at the moment, but I'm 
still turning that around and interested in exploring it further. So I'd like to play a game with this idea and have created a creative storytelling experience that I'm inviting everyone listening to participate in. Head over to facebook.com slash the permaculture podcast or by following the link in the show notes. And since I don't know when you'll get this, look for a post from September 30th, 2015 that begins a game for us to play together and read through the comments so that your reply adds a new sentence to the story. Just one. Then let someone else respond before adding another. We'll see where this goes and what a community of permaculture practitioners can create. Though my idea of myth-making comes from the tabletop and games, Jen Mendez, a show sponsor, and her collaborative partner Dr. David Blumenkrantz examine how to apply this idea to children and communities so that together we can change the story of our culture and transform the future. Join them for their virtual campfire sessions by going to permikids.com forward slash our shared story or use the link in the show notes. From here next week is the first of the roundtable conversations recorded at the Riverside Project outside of Charlestown, West Virginia. My next interview is with Dylan Cruz on Monday, October 5th to continue the series on faith and earth care. Tuesday, October 6th, Sandor Katz joins me to discuss fermentation. Email or call me if you have any questions for either of them. Until the next time, spend each day creating the world you want to live in through your stories and your actions by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.